0: are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. Spoiler alert! No matter when this film was released, there's a good possibility I will be revealing spoilers about the plot, or even possibly the ending, so just be warned. Zero Dark Thirty which came out in 2012, and was directed by Catherine Bigelow. It stars Jessica Chastain, Jason Clarke, Kyle Chandler, Jennifer Ely, Mark Strong, Edgar Ramirez, Rita Kateb, Joel Edgerton, Chris Pratt, Harold Perrineau, Jeremy Strong, and James Gandolfini. The genre would be war thriller. You really believe this story? Osama Bin Laden? Yeah. What convinced you? Her confidence. This is a professional attempt to avoid detection. Real tradecraft. You're on a list. You of all people should know that once you're on their list, you never get off. There's a 60% probability he's there. I'd say it's a soft 60, sir. It's 100%. I know certainty freaks you guys out, but it's 100. You will never find him. He is one of the disappeared ones. Given when it came out and what it portrays, I don't think there is any way for most Americans who remember the events involved to view this film objectively. And I will cede to that point myself, as I personally knew someone who was murdered during the 9-11 attacks, and I harbored much anger towards the focus of this manhunt, Osama bin Laden. And along those lines, I also harbored much anger at the leaders of our American government, who not only allowed those attacks to occur, but also got us bogged down in an unnecessary war in Iraq for many years, which caused even more unnecessary deaths. And just to clarify, I am not equating Osama bin Laden with President Bush. You're allowed to dislike various levels of evil and or incompetence for different reasons. It's not binary. The stark reality is likely that all events which occurred with regards to U.S. intelligence and defense between September 11, 2001 and May second, 2011 were very messy. There was a lot of preventable tragedy and very little in the way of triumph. May second, 2011 was of course the date when it was officially announced that the U.S. military, with assistance from U.S. intelligence, found and killed Osama bin Laden. I remember it the minute it occurred as it was one of those seminal moments of history occurring real-time. I remember feeling more relieved than celebratory. That seemed to be also the general consensus, the general response around the country as well. There were no victory parades. It didn't even feel appropriate to have any, nor was it particularly easy to assess what impact this announcement would have. And at this very time, this film was in pre-production. Director Catherine Bigelow and writer Mark Bull had conceived of this story as being about a tireless manhunt which never actually resulted in the U.S. government finding its man. The working title for the project was actually, believe it or not, quote, Kill Bin Laden. And it was said to focus more on at least one failed real-life mission to capture or kill Bin Laden in Afghanistan in the early 2000s. So the makers of this film, they had two choices at this point. Scrap the movie or completely rewrite it. They elected to do the latter, which included pretty much reconceiving the entire half of the movie, focusing on the direct pursuit of bin Laden's personal courier, of course leading to the direct pursuit of bin Laden himself. There are two narratives about the location of Osama bin Laden. The one that you're most familiar with is that UBL is hiding in a cave in the tribal areas, that he's surrounded by a large contingent of loyal fighters. But that narrative is pre 9 11 understanding of UBL. The second narrative is that he's living in a city, living in a city with multiple points of egress and entry, access to communications, so that he can keep in touch with the organization. You can't run a global network of interconnected cells from a cave. We've located an individual we believe, based on detainee reporting, is bin Laden's courier. He's living in a house in Abbottabad, Pakistan, and we assess that one of the other occupants of the house is UBL. And first and foremost, this movie is an absorbing procedural thriller with a central protagonist, Jessica Chastain, playing Maya, who is pretty much in every scene. Her single minded CIA agent often feels detached, yet there is enough emotion there to keep her compelling to follow. Chastain delivers a very tricky, very impressive performance here. Every gesture, every reaction is an economical one. Any instances of laughter or tears are often fleeting. She gets scared when placed in danger, yet her character and the camera never seems to linger on it. She rarely raises her voice, and we see very little, if any type of personal relationships that she might have. That means Faraj thinks Abu Ahmed is just as important to protect as Bin Laden. That confirms my lead. Or it's confirmation bias. Hmm. Hmm. We're just worried about you, okay? Is that okay to say? I mean, look how run down you are. (sighs) Maya is all about the job, and the movie takes on a very agnostic tone regarding most things that she's involved with, and or which occur around her. And yes, that agnostic tone includes torture, or what it was called at the time, enhanced interrogation. But I'll get to that a bit later. And throughout the second half of this film, we see this operation escalate further on the ground as Maya finds out that her main lead is Osama bin Laden, or as he's known in the movie, UBL, his main courier, Abu Ahmed. And we see this during a very super tense extended sequence taking place in Pashwar, Pakistan, featuring strong but mostly wordless performances by Edgar Ramirez and Rita Kateb as Maya's men on the ground. And they're doing very dangerous yet seemingly very thankless work trudging through crowded streets, trying to zero in on one man and one phone number. Back to 40. He's here somewhere. Look at the cars. Look at the cars. He's in the vehicle. The guy with the phone in the white car. You see him? Is that him? Could be. You got him? Got him. Okay, breaking out. It's a masterful demonstration of both the consistent danger and mundanity of such an operation. And throughout this movie, the tension just never lets up, as we also see Maya herself placed in danger, even attacked. We also see the aftermath of other al-Qaeda attacks throughout the world. And as a result, there is much drama that comes through high-wire meetings and our briefings featuring individuals further up the intelligence chain, including the late, great James Gandolfini as then Defense Secretary Leon Panetta. By the time Gandolfini appears in the movie, he just feels like such a welcome addition to the team, as he provides a much-needed tension-breaking exchange with Chastain late in the story, resulting in what I think is one of the funnier uses of a certain 12-letter profanity word in recent memory. What's this, this cluster of buildings down here? By the PMA, it's the Pakistani Military Academy. It's there, West Point. And how close is that to the house? About a mile. 4,221 feet. It's closer to eight-tenths of a mile. Who are you? I'm the motherfucker that found this place, sir. Really? All right, I want to know more about who's inside this house by the end of the week. Sir? Motherfucker. Good. And of course, this leads to the film's final 30 minutes, focusing mostly on that final SEAL raid into Bin Laden's compound in Pakistan. This sequence is masterfully crafted, especially since so much of it occurs in the dark, dependent on the use of night vision. It's also here that director of photography Greg Frazier really shines. He would also go on to do equally masterful genre work over the next 10 years with movies like Rogue One, previous episodes Dune, and The Batman. Seriously, there's just nobody better at shooting set pieces in the dark. He's one of the best, and it all started here. This whole raid climax was apparently shot exactly one year after the actual raid, with a ton of on-the-ground info from those who were there to help flesh it out. And it shows. Bigelow frames all this tension and never shies away from the brutal efficiency of this situation. We got an unlocked door. The Al-Qaeda men who were quickly dispatched with gunfire were obviously bad guys. But we are also left with that haunting image of a room filled with the young children that they left behind, all crying and frightened beyond belief. It's amazing just how much tension is wrung from a situation where the outcome was already preordained, at least from the standpoint of the audience. All the while, we also never feel like this is an overtly heroic situation either. It's just very messy, like the true life events that this movie was based upon. This brings me to the categories, and the first category would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film. French composer Alexandre Desplat provides most of the music for this film, leading a full orchestra, including Middle Eastern-specific woodwinds and flutes. His often tense score is rarely bombastic, but is affecting in just the right spots. And this brings me to that final haunting image of the film, of Chastain sitting alone on that army jet. She just identified UBL's body, and now she can go wherever she wants. After 10 years, Maya has accomplished her mission. This miraculous task, which few thought possible, of finding bin Laden. You can tell that she's both relieved and a bit shaken, and there's one lingering question showing on her face, though she never says it. Where do we go now? Yeah, it's a perfect ending to this story, with just her gently crying as the screen fades to black. And over this, we hear a subtle melody of guitar mixed with piano, which nails her emotions just perfectly. And in my opinion, the audience's as well. The track is called Maya on Plane, and it is a very affecting piece of music for a very effective ending. The next category would be Wasted Talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Now, yes, I'm going to get political here because I don't think politics are avoidable with this film. I'm going to address what I believe was the misguided backlash that this film received not long after it was released. A backlash which likely cost it several awards, among other things. I'm talking, of course, about the controversy related to the torture of terror suspects which is portrayed in the first act of this movie. This was a huge issue for many people when it first came out when maya first starts in this movie she witnesses it being done to terror suspects mostly led by jason clark's fellow cia agent dan and his character and his actions they pretty much dominate the first 20 minutes of this movie as we watch him run the torture gamut on one particular detained suspect at a black site where was the last time you saw bin laden where was the last time you saw bin laden huh you know when you lie to me i hurt you (laughs) This is what defeat looks like, bro Your jihad is over Hit him up Try to understand the concept here Okay, I have time, you don't I have other things to do, but you don't it's cool, but you're strong. I respect it. I do. In the end, everybody breaks, bro. That's biology. Clark also happens to be giving a very sharp performance here. Now, from my standpoint, the torture is presented to us as an ugly practice, which was unnecessarily cruel. And its link to providing actionable intelligence is very tenuous at best. It is neither glorified nor justified. From my observations, Bigelow and Bull respect the audience more than that. Administering it also takes its toll on Dan, which he makes clear roughly a third into the movie. And that's it. This is not a self-reflective world that we are following in this movie at this time. Maya is not self-reflective. There is no time devoted towards watching field agents or analysts, including her and those around her, discussing the moral implications of their actions. The only things we see them discuss at length are the risks of proposed actions, and most importantly, the results. And this just might be my cynicism talking, but I'm personally inclined to believe that when all this was occurring, there wasn't actually much discussion about the moral implications. There was just a focus on the mission. To me, that's just honest storytelling. The reality is that, of course, the hunt for bin Laden is and should be the focus of this story. And I'm not referring to this being a simplistic ends justify the means justification for questionable practices either. No, the use of black sites and enhanced interrogations of suspects at those sites is not celebrated, but nor can it be ignored. But it just happens to be an early part of this story. It seems to me that by merely showing this torture so prominently off the bat in this movie, Bigelow kind of painted herself into a no-win scenario. But I get why she did it. It is a critical part of the story, but it's just not the whole story. I just personally find it ridiculous that 10 years ago after this came out, there was a lot of hand wringing online and media comparing this movie to TV shows like 24, calling it pro torture propaganda. I hope in years to come that people reevaluate their opinions on this film, and then maybe they take a second look at those torture scenes to see what's really being shown. This brings me to the trailer moment, the scene or moment that best describes this movie. There is a very critical scene about halfway through when we see Mark Strong's CIA head named George enter the movie, delivering a searing monologue to everyone involved with the bin Laden hunt at that time, including Maya. We see George just take them all to task in a CIA conference room. This sequence is powerful, even with minimal context. If you thought there was some secret cell somewhere working Al-Qaeda, then I want you to know that you're wrong. This is it. There's no working group coming to the rescue. There's nobody else hidden away on some other floor. There is just us and we are failing. We're spending billions of dollars. People are dying. We are still no closer to defeating our enemy. They attacked us on land in 98 by sea in 2000 and from the air. In 2001, they murdered 3,000 of our citizens in cold blood. And they have slaughtered our forward deployed. And what the fuck have we done about it, huh? What have we done? Now, whether this actually occurred this way at the time, it's a truly effective scene to raise the emotional stakes for the remainder of the story. And from this point on, Strong has an increasingly prominent role. He becomes a new sounding board for Maya, and through her sheer will, he becomes her eventual advocate, and an advocate for the mission. And now the final category, the MVP, the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. Now, given what happened in the spring of 2011, you could make a very strong case that Bigelow and Bull should have just held off on this production, maybe waited a few more years to allow for not only getting more context regarding Bin Laden's pursuit, but to better ensure that they were getting the most accurate details of how this mission was accomplished. But this is Hollywood. This is a business. And by this point in 2011, there were already several competing projects in development. Bigelow's project was further along than any of them. And she was also never going to have more sway to push this movie through than at this particular time, having just won the Oscars for Best Picture and Best Director just the year prior. And I'm glad that she did, because this film is astounding on just about every level. It's tightly edited, methodically structured, elegantly shot, and expertly acted with every performer giving a natural, lived-in performance. There's a brutal sense of randomness driving this story, as it's obvious off the bat That not only was there never any kind of cohesive plan in place to take down bin Laden, but that so many fatal mistakes were made along the way by the U.S. government. It's not a rah-rah, quote, this is why we fight inspirational story with a triumphant conclusion. But it also never feels like a relentless indictment of the U.S. intelligence community either, portraying them as strictly bad actors with a nefarious agenda overall. This is why despite making pretty good box office, getting strong reviews, and receiving several Oscar nominations, including Best Picture, which I believe it should have won, the film actually left many people feeling cold or angry upon release. For me, I did and I still do find this an invigorating watch. I cannot imagine any other director treating this subject matter with such care and urgency as Catherine Bigelow did. And I'm extremely grateful that she had an adept screenwriting partner who could adapt to massive changes on the ground to reconfigure the movie in such a short time frame. For collaborating as writer and director on what I believe is the greatest American film of the past decade, Catherine Bigelow and Mark Bull are co-MVPs. I gotta say, your job, Hmm. (laughs) I just don't get the rhythms of politics. Oh, you think this is political? This was political. we would be having this conversation in October when there's an election bump. This is pure risk based on deductive reasoning, inference, supposition and the only human reporting you have is six years old from detainees who are questioned under duress. The political move here is to tell you to go fuck yourself and remind <laughs> you that I was in the room when your old boss pitched WMD Iraq. At least there you guys bought photographs. You know you're right I agree with everything you just said. What I meant was a man in your position how do you evaluate the risk of not doing something? Hmm? The risk of potentially letting Bin Laden slip through your fingers. That is a fascinating question. My rating for Zero Dark Thirty would be five stars out of five. <laughs> and if you're looking to watch Zero Dark Thirty, it's currently streaming on Netflix. And that ends another redacted review. Special shout out to my lovely wife, Marlene Gershon, for producing this podcast and to my lovely daughter, Ella Gershon, for assisting in the editing. Please like, subscribe and share the Living for the Cinema podcast and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema.